of Breaking Kayfabe with Boudrin and Barry. First of all, uh, the day this episode comes out will be the day after the 4th of July. So, John Lee, we raise an adult beverage to celebrate the colonist victory over the imperialist from the UK. <laughs> you son of a bitch. So, on this particular episode, first of all, welcome Lord Barons. Thank you, sir. Thank you. So, uh, by the way, I would encourage all of you to like, follow, subscribe, and hit the notification bell. I heard that in another podcast, Barry, so I figured we should start doing it, too. Uh, match of the week this week, we are going back to July 4th. Speaking of that day, 1985, the Tarrant County Convention Center. I don't know. Is that Dallas or Fort Worth, Barry? Do you know the difference? Uh is there a difference between Dallas and Fort Worth? Or well, it's a, the, the Metroplex area, if you will. Yes, we're talking Kevin and Carrie, the Von Ericks taking on Gino Hernandez and Chris Adams, the dynamic duo. We're going to get to that in just a second. Besides all that, oh, Barry, we had a fun interview. Special thanks to our man, Nick Massey. We have downtown Bruno coming to join us to talk a little bit about his time in Memphis. Uh, great story with him and Bam Bam Bigelow taking on the uh, local bully. I thought that was a great story, Barry. Uh, we're going to be reviewing the recent blood and guts match from AEW. Uh, we will be doing a little Florida man. It's sort of a weekly segment now, Barry, uh, as people like are sending me right off. Yeah, really. People sending me the stories and uh, I'm reviewing, as I said before, any story that involves death, eh, I'm not going to be doing that, but uh, I will consider all stories. I got three good ones there for you today. Uh, uh, his Lordship, Barry, and I will be discussing that I have finished the TV show, Barry, which in fact is not based on Barry Rose's life, although that would make a pretty good uh, HBO show. I'm sure you would agree. So. Barry, let's talk a little Von Erichs versus Gino and Chris. So let me just set it up before I throw it to you for your thoughts on the match. So much going on here. This is literally a 20-minute segment, and the match lasts maybe nine and a half minutes. You got the two promos from Gino and Chris, uh, each giving a promo, uh, talking about other different stuff going on in the territory. So uh, you got Gino's Corvette is on the line this match. The stipulations are that if uh, the Von Erichs win, they get to annihilate Gino's Corvette in front of them. Uh, if Gino and Chris win, they get a stipulation match of their choosing down the line. Uh, Mark Lawrence on the call. And by the way, Barry, how great is Mark Lawrence in this match? I was always a huge fan of Mark Lawrence as well. So he was always good to me. He's He's kind of like... A younger, perhaps even more enthusiastic David Crockett, uh, yeah. you know, and, and you know, he, he has a great There's line a about <laughs> what, what's that? There's a left handed compliment right yeah, there. Yeah, right. So, so there's a great line where, where he said, you know, that they, they show that uh, Gino has been forced to give over the keys to his Corvette uh, to Ken Mantell, the, uh, the booker in the area at the time. And uh, Mark says that corporate police are standing by to make sure that Gino does not get the keys to that car back uh, if they, in fact, lose the match. There's just so much stuff going on here. Uh, so now that I've kind of given the uh, stipulations, Barry, tell the good folks listening, what did you think of this match? Yeah, so it's uh, so the match itself is what the match is, right? It's a, as you said, it's the setup. And the match to me is typical Von Erich match. Looks like they're throwing a lot of potato shots. 
Carrie and Kevin both laying them in. And I know that I think it's Michael Hayes has talked about how stiff they were. But every time I see Carrie and any of the Von Erics, actually, maybe with the exception of Chris, but the rest of the Von Erics, whenever they were throwing punches or working, it, it looks like it's so painful. So this starts off with a great promo from Gino, which really, I think, was what Gino's strength was. He wasn't the greatest wrestler. He had a great psychology of understanding the business and also knew how to connect and really get the crowd up in arms. And uh, even his presence of coming out and just the way he gestures, the crowd hates him. There's a couple of young ladies in the front row that obviously don't hate him. They were, it seemed like they were heavily into Gino. They do an interview with Chris Adams as well. Chris, not quite as spirited as Gino was, but what I really liked, and as you just talked about, they show this little red Corvette and they've got it. Uh, they have it stanchioned off. I see what you did there. You, you caught that. See? Thank you. Yeah, exactly. And they've got it. Maybe you're much off. too fast. Well, baby, you know, you are <laughs> exactly. We could do it all. We just do the whole Prince catalog right exactly. now. Exactly. episode. <laughs> and uh, so they've got this, this little red cord. You don't have to watch dynasty off. to have an attitude. <laughs> you're going, going down a whole rabbit hole here i'm gonna stop i was gonna say and uh and it's kind of cool because they have a cop on either side of the corvette corporate kind police of cool. huh the corporate police is mark Lawrence. it's said. the court which i don't understand what that what that meant the of corporate course, police, i have no idea but, yeah but it looks like it, the way that they've got it stanchioned off reminds me of like an auto show when they didn't want you to touch the car and and then Ken Mantell comes over. Ken Mantell, still looking relatively young here. He re- retired at a young age, and I don't know why. And Ken Mantell kind of going through those kayfabe motions with the cops, like he's really saying something to them and making these facial gestures. But when you when you when you see the Corvette, it's in a building first off. So this is not even outside. They've actually brought the vehicle inside of a building. You're pretty much sure. There's no way in hell this this car is not going to get demolished, right? Like this, this, this is like having demolished. a this is like having a cake in a TV studio. Exactly. And you think, yeah. oh, someone's face is going in the cake, you know? It's ex- if it's a birthday and there's a cake, if there's a wedding, you just know some shit's going to go down. You've got a car and they're telling you that they're going to destroy the car if they win. You're pretty sure who's winning on this match. And Kevin Von Erich, when they get in the ring, Kevin Von Erich looks like he has an axe. Uh, it, they, it, Mark Lawrence says he has a hatchet. Okay, but that's a big fucking hatchet, though. I don't. <laughs> yeah. is, was a hatchet something you could hold, like in in your hand? This was yes. this was an axe. That, that's not a hatchet. Well, I mean, and, that's uh, what Mark Lawrence said. Yeah, the great, the great Mark Lawrence. And I'm yes. surprised there's not a sledgehammer. So the match starts again. The match is what the match is. It's not. You know, if you want to see potatoes being thrown and they they do their normal spots, but it's nothing too crazy with that. Do you want to wrap up what the finish was? So let me just say you're spot on about the match is what it is. This is, uh, you know, you and I, when we talk about our matches of the week, uh, we've had matches that great technical wrestling. I've had matches that have been like loads of high spots and stuff like that. Then we have matches that uh, I, I don't know if it was you or me that came up with there is a spectacle. And that's what this is. This is like just a spectacle because of all the shit that happens around the match. So uh, I made a co. First of all, let me just point out, technically speaking, 
the production for this match in 1985 was really so much more advanced than any other territory. Uh, you think that's fair, Barry? Yeah, it it definitely was fair. Uh, it, I think that was always a strong point. There were some strong points that took place in world class. One of them was their production values. And I think that was actually acknowledged by, I don't want to say Meltzer talked about it in the observer, but that was acknowledged. They actually had at one point, fantastic production values. And the fact that they were able to market their product, it was like the number one sports show in Israel yeah, or sports related show in Israel. That's genius right there. Yeah. And, and I want to say the guy that was the producer of their shows was his name, Keith Mitchell. Um, it was, but I think he just, just retired. I think. Yeah. Already. I completely pulled that one out of a hat because uh, you know, that's going back a long ways, but no, he was, he was really considered kind of revolutionary with what he was doing uh, in a, in a territory like that uh, and being able to sell it uh, out of the country because the technical, you know, standards were so high on that. So as I was watching this, the other thing is the stipulations for this match are the stipulations that ended up leading to the cotton bowl match. That was hair versus hair, which we've reviewed previously, Barry. So uh, that, that was kind of interesting that we, we kind of did the, the matches in reverse order here uh, without realizing it. So uh, they're introduced and I can never remember the name of the announcer that, that does the introductions here. He reminds me so much of the WWF announcer, Jill McHugh. Uh, and because this guy, uh, is, he just seems so completely out of his element, you know, like they're tr marketing to kind of a young hip audience in that area with the Von Erics and the Freebirds and Gino and Chris. And this guy looks like somebody's old uncle, you know? And, uh, so after he does the ring introductions, okay, David Manning, let, let's talk a little about David Manning. David Manning is a guy that. He never met a camera that he did not want to be in front of, considering he was the official that should, uh, you know, be seen and not heard. He grabs the house mic and says, uh, uh, this is no DQ. Anything goes. And the crowd just loses their mind. But, you know, it's like David Manning had to get his one little moment uh, where he is uh, he, he is in front of the crowd and he's got the mic and he's able to get his notice by the crowd. The crowd is absolutely on fire here, Barry. Like you said, there's a few girls in the front row that are obviously more into Gino and Chris than they were uh, the Von Erichs, but they are, uh, the crowd is for the, and they say it's 15,000. I don't know if there was actually 15,000 there, but uh, it's a, it's a crowd that is very vocal, very into the match uh, and the storyline. Um, Mark Lawrence uh, with a couple of just absolute gems. Uh, the implication of this match, he says, is so serious. Uh, and then he mentions, I'm so nervous, I almost can't commentate. And then we get to the moment in the match, Barry, uh, and I think when I told you about this match, I referenced this uh, because this is the this is second week in a, a row, by the way, Barry, that I think I called an audible on our match of the week. Uh, so uh, there's a, a moment in the match where there's a, a four-way schmoz going on uh, during the match, and... Uh, David Manning is bumped, goes into the ropes, does the flip where he grabs the rope and his head is caught between the two ropes. And Mark Lawrence says the following, David Manning, my God, he's choking. I beg your pardon. He could have been killed. He was hanging by his neck in the ropes. Oh my God, Barry, how great was that moment? David Manning sold that spot like no one's business. And it was kind of cool to see it done from a referee where it wasn't being done by a, uh, a wrestler. And then did you catch uh, 
when they got him out of the, the ring ropes, they just, they literally picked him up and flipped him over. Yes. Back into the ring. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but uh, you know, Lawrence selling it, like, uh, it, it reminded me of the, uh, the famous angle that they did in Florida with, uh, Eddie Graham where, uh, Gordon, uh, Eddie Graham is hemorrhaging in the ring. Uh, was it Kendo Nagasaki or was it somebody else? Remember Barry? That was Kendo. Yep. You're, yeah. you're correct. And, and he gets kicked in the throat. He's hemorrhaging and Gordon solely, uh, to sell how serious this is. He not only leaves the desk, he actually gets in the ambulance with Eddie Graham. And that's uh, the, the way that Mark Lawrence, uh, over the top, oh, my God, he's hanging by the neck. He could have been killed. But it was so great that he sold it like it was such a incredibly life-threatening situation. Uh, and then, of course, uh, what happens is Gino powders carry. Uh, kinda, I, I got to say, I'm kind of surprised that it was Kerry that did the job here in this match. You know, I mean, it's a guy that was a world champion, you know. And uh, so, so Gino were, gets – Two surprises with that, and you're right. First off, Kerry doing the job is a huge shock, but then the fact that the the heels got the win and the car was not destroyed, yes, to me is even a bigger shock. Yeah, and you know the, what's crazy, and what happens is uh, you got Rick Hazard who had come in to help save David Manning, uh, counts the pinfall. Uh, so the heels win. Uh, you know, I, I I thought I saw another clip of this match, uh, you know, out there where you see, and it's maybe. Uh, the one I watched, that there's an additional maybe 10 seconds where you see Gino and Chris leaving the ringside area. And literally, they need police protection and start going back. Because now they've defeated the the, the fabled Von Erich boys and, uh, you know, by uh, screwing them out of the win. And they're led back to the uh, dressing room by the cops. But, um, yeah, first of all, let me just also mention uh, thanks to uh, Mark Black, who uh, sent, sent me the recommendation on uh, a match that kind of led me to this one. So thanks for that, Mark. But a lot of fun. As I said, Barry, this is uh, not necessarily a great technical match, uh, but as a spectacle, it's a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah, and this is what we talk about. This is this a, a snapshot into a successful territory in the 80s. And this, this right here, the four guys that were really responsible, uh, at least at that stage, for making this a really successful territory. And what a hot feud. Jeff, I know that we've asked this question numerous times. Chris and Gino or Gino and Tully? Uh, well, I think my response to that was that Gino and Chris were the better act. Gino and Tully were the better team. That's, that's my extremely fair. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of my way of getting on. So I have a question for you now that you've asked one uh, of me. Uh -oh. So as I sat there and was watching this, the Von Erics. Of course, legendary feud with the Freebirds that went on a couple of years. Then they segued into this feud with Gino and Chris. So everyone talks about the Von Erichs versus the Freebirds as a legendary feud. Are people underestimating and perhaps underrating the Von Erichs versus Gino and Chris? I think so. And I, I think this was also an odd time in world class in some ways. So there, there was, uh, I think there was, uh, and, and I think they will always continue to be. And I know a lot of times when I, when I watch some of these matches and like even today as I'm watching and, you know, and it, it's in my head and Kevin's the only one who's still alive. Right. I know like that's Kevin, crazy. It, yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's, you know, and I, I get it, you know, what, 36 years ago, but still, you know, everybody died young and all that. But uh, I would go with what you were saying. I, I agree about 
Tully and Gino as a team. I think they could have gone national and they could have been big. As an act, I think Chris and Gino, I think Chris is a singles and probably a babyface is really what his calling was. And I was a big Chris Adams fan. Um, but I, again, this is highly recommended, this match. What I like about it, too, and, and you, you mentioned this in the beginning, the frenzy of the crowd. And whether there's 8,000 or 15,000, whatever's there, these people are whipped up and ready to go. They're, they're completely frenzied-like. And uh, as we conclude uh, this portion, how great was Chris's hat? Oh, it was fantastic. <laughs> I didn't even mention how great that hat is. He's, he comes walking in wearing this fedora, and it just it just looks so cool. I really love the hat. I love that hat. I love this whole outfit, and uh, yeah, I, I just thought the whole – you have to win him. He's talking about another match he's going to be having where you've got to win a match with a kick and all that. But uh, this is so much fun. Yeah, so I tell you what, Barry, right now, why don't we, uh, speaking of fun, uh, nothing as much fun as a good old-fashioned Memphis match. So why don't we go to our interview with a Memphis legend, if you will, downtown Bruno. Barry, we are extremely pleased to be joined by none other than the man known in Mempho as downtown Bruno. How cool is that, Barry? That. I'm a big fan of this guy, so I'm really excited that he's with us today. So, Bruno, thank well, you so much I'm, for joining us here on Breaking K Fabe with Bowdrin Barry. Hey, I'm happy to be here uh, uh, with y'all. Only only problem is I don't break K Fabe, so oh, <laughs> let's just you. work around that. We're gonna we're gonna immediately end this interview. So we always like to say that we start at the beginning. So uh, I can't help but notice uh, you were born in Jackson, Mississippi. How old were you when you left Jackson? Well, uh, hell, right away, really. I just happened to, that's just where I happened to be. Uh, oh, okay. No, because I, I used to live in Jackson. That's why I was asking. I didn't know if you'd spend oh, okay. Time. Yeah, I didn't spend any time there as a child. I spent, uh, oh. uh, from when I was a child till, till I was, uh, seven, I was in West Virginia. Then I came back to Mississippi to, uh, Northwest Mississippi, where I'm at now. And mom and dad were on the West Virginia, Pennsylvania borderline just not too far from the biggest major city up there was Pittsburgh. So I spent some time up there as a child too. My summers are here in DeSoto County, Mississippi. And then finally uh, made it, you know, my permanent home. I didn't keep going back and forth. And so basically I don't know much about Jackson other than I've been through there a hundred times, but uh, the Memphis area is my true, true one and only home. So that's, no, no, I get it. And so let about me, the Memphis area, I can tell you. Yeah. So let me just ask you, what was it uh, when you were a kid that first drew you to pro wrestling? Uh, was there a particular guy that you were like, wow, yeah, I really, I, I, I got to check this out. Who is, who is that guy or what was that promotion that first got a young Bruno interested in pro wrestling? Well, let me tell you, I don't have that, uh, that uh, story that a lot of the guys, you know, would tell you, oh, I grew up watching wrestling. My hero was this one or that one or the other one. And I always wanted to be in the business. A lot of guys have that story and I admire them for it and respect that they followed their, dreams or whatnot but the fact is on my end i got in the business to survive you know uh i wasn't trying to get in the business per se at the time um we went to a, me and some other guys went to a fair in uh west virginia and they had wrestling there and the guy that i went with was there to, to work he had some work to do he brought me to come in and hang out with him well there was wrestling inside this tent 
when I was bored walking around, didn't have no money, didn't have to ride the rides or do none of the games. So I thought I'd go in and watch the wrestling match. Well, the people said, no, that's extra. That ain't part of the fair. If you don't have a uh, place to separate mission, you can't come into the wrestling. I said, oh, man. Well, some of these guys that worked for Dale Mann, who was the promoter that put it on, who was a great guy, um, said, hey, if you'll promise to help us stay and help us tear down the ring and load the ring on the uh, trailer, we'll let you come in. And that's how I started in the business in 1979. Yeah, and, and in looking to, and, and we Jeff and I did a little bit of research. We're not really professional either, we should say, but occasionally we do some research. Semi-professional broadcast. Semi-professional wow. is what we like to say. But somebody that you uh, you spent a lot of time with in your early stages of your career was Lord Jonathan Boyd. And Lord Jonathan Boyd, even by wrestling standards, had a reputation as a wild man. What was that like for you being such a young guy, a kid, essentially hooking up and being mentored by maybe one of the craziest professional wrestlers of all time and Lord Jonathan Boyd? Yeah, it, I'm going to tell you, yeah, it wasn't easy. And he could be <laughs> very, very, very mean sometimes. And, and, you know, almost to the point where I was scared of him, you know, but uh, he, he taught me a lot about the business. He helped me get booked in various places. He talked me up uh, to different promotions and whatnot, but he was, he wasn't on drugs or anything. He smoked marijuana, but I mean, he wasn't on cocaine or heroin or back then pills weren't even a thing, you know, in life, let alone in the business. So he wasn't a drug guy, but he was just out of control. And he was a bad drunk. If he got drunk, he could get really, really mean. And years later, he found out that me and Rocky Johnson rode to a town together in the Memphis territory, even though Rocky was a baby face and I was a heel. And Jonathan, I mean, he grabbed me by my face. He threatened to rip my throat out. I mean, it's awful. Just the, the way, you know, and, I, and I'm a big fan of protecting the business. Don't get me wrong. I always have been and always will be. I don't get into deep detail about the business. But, you know, what? I'm not going to insult nobody's intelligence either. The thing is, Rocky had a, a problem with his tires. There was no way for him to make the town. It was too late to get the tires. So he rode to the town with me, but he sat in the back seat, wore a hat, the whole bit. We didn't go eat nowhere together or be seen nowhere, nothing like that. But anyway, when Jonathan found out, he just really took it out on me. But then Rocky got in basically in his face. How come you don't take it out on me then? I was in the car too, you know, so that defused the situation. But I mean, Jonathan was, uh, yeah, he was definitely out of control a lot of times. And, but, you know, it was sad because, but the last time I ever saw him when he was leaving the Alabama territory back in 87, I think it was. And he was pretty much at the end of his career and he was bad drunk. I mean, his eyes were bloodshot all the time. He was just, he smelled like a brewer. He was in just bad shape. And, Last time I ever seen him, and it was funny. I was on my way up in the business at that point. Not that I became John Cena or something, but I made a good living and always have, still do. But this fellow just—it was sad. I seen him just—he was—he was like the wrestler in that Mickey Rourke movie. You know, that's how he wound up. Oh, and that's uh, that's sad too. So, hey, Jeff, and, and I apologize too because I know that you were going to ask Bruno a question, but you brought up Rocky Johnson. I uh, Rocky is responsible for my love of professional wrestling. Rocky was a good friend. I knew Dwayne uh, 
you know, when Dwayne was about five, six years old and occasionally keep in touch with him. But I know that, you know, you obviously were friendly with Rocky, which I knew ahead of time. And and you also knew Dwayne at, at a relatively young age. What was your relationship with Rocky and Dwayne like going back, you know, 30 years ago, 35 years ago? Oh, it was fantastic. Me and Rocky were best of friends. Rocky is, there's, there's uh, three people that are responsible for my life. Three people. Rocky Johnson, Jerry King Lawler, and uh, Sid Udi. Uh, and then, of course, I had a lot of helpers along the way, and everybody that hired me along the way. Thank you. But these are the guys that, that opened doors for me and gave me opportunities. Um, Rocky is the one that made me a manager. Because uh, when I was working for Bob Goggle in Kansas City, I was putting up the ring and taking it down. I was refereeing. And Rocky knew I had managed before, like Dale Mann and, and, you know, smaller places. And he, he wanted me to be a manager. But see, Bob Geigel was a great guy. I must say, anything against Bob Geigel, rest his soul. I loved the man. Loved the man. But he was very old school. He didn't like the entertaining Memphis type of manager running around and interfering in the match. Wherever. He wanted the manager to be like an old Gene Anderson type guy with a suit and tie sitting in the corner with sunglasses on. That wasn't going to get over. So Rocky brought me to Hawaii and made me a manager. And that's what got my career rolling. Rocky befriended me, bring me to Hawaii. So that, and through that, later when Rocky came back to Memphis and I was at Memphis managing on top, he brought Dwayne with him. And that's when me and Dwayne became very close friends. And it's been going on for, I guess that's 37, 38 years ago now. So, um, but basically, yeah, Rocky and me, he was like a second dad to me. Me and Rocky were extremely close. And it broke my heart when, when uh, he passed away. So let me ask you, you, you were discussing uh, growing up uh, uh, around the Pittsburgh area. Uh, my understanding is uh, you, uh, very young in your career, knew uh, the late Brian Hildebrand uh, and uh, Shane Douglas. You worked in promotions with those guys. Is that correct? No, uh, I never worked in promotion with Shane Douglas ever until he came to Alabama. Bad in intel, Barry. <laughs> that wasn't for me. Uh, hey, it's not for me. Yeah, <laughs> so what, what um, about Brian Hildebrand? Yeah, Hildebrand, I, I, I met uh, actually probably on the same uh, Dale Mann uh, and Guido Tatry, who's also involved up there, probably through that. Um, yeah, I, I knew Brian Hildebrand. We weren't close friends or anything, but uh, I mean, we were okay. Uh, and uh, I guess the reason we weren't close friends, the same reason me and Heyman weren't when we were both young in the business, because when you're a manager looking for a spot, you're not going to buddy up the other manager after his spot and vice versa, you know? So, uh, so absolutely nothing against Brian, bless his heart too. God bless him. Uh, he left his way too early in life. And, uh, but yeah, he was a good guy, a good Catholic kid. Uh, and I say, God bless him. Well, wow. So one of the first angles that I remember you in Memphis, you were, and, and this is it, it, it still, I think is one of my favorite things ever you were managing Big Bubba, who's Fred Ottman, uh, right. who's a, a friend as well, and a guy named the uh, Goliath. Who was, a, who, was right. who was Goliath, by the way? Who was that? His name was Robert White, Bob White. He actually had, ended up coming back to Memphis years later as one of the Moondogs. Moondogs, Moondogs Splat, believe it or not. Got um, it. Okay. Good, good guy. He was trained by Guido Tatry, uh, and he came to Memphis and he was a good guy. I, I'm very surprised that he never got a run in 
WWE or someplace else like that. Because I think he was good. And it wasn't a bad guy. He wasn't a drunk guy or nothing like that. So it just didn't get a right break. I guess the business was different then. But uh, he yeah. was a good guy. I liked him. And a big guy, too. I mean, he was definitely big. And there was an angle on TV. And I, I forget exactly what all the details were. But it turned into a dance contest between Rocky and Fred Ottman. Do you remember this? Yeah, vaguely. I was leaving Memphis for uh, – I actually go back to Kansas City about that time. That, that was a bad time in my career. That's when I was uh, – being basically replaced by a guy named Brickhouse Brown. And they were taking me out of the main angles or whatnot in Memphis. So that was a bad part of my career. Uh, I remember that I was splitting right about that time. Gotcha. Yeah. It's just, and I, I say too, I, I, Jeff, if you've never seen this and it's on YouTube, Rocky, uh, excellent professional wrestler, but not the greatest dancer, but to <laughs> see Fred Ottman try to break dance. Uh, you got to go out of your way to be able to catch this. It's unlike anything. If you're just joining us, and that's for Rick Nathan, who gives me a hard time every time I say that, if you're just joining us, we are very fortunate today to have as a special guest with us, uh, downtown Bruno, Bruno Lauer with us in professional wrestling. I Literally, I think most of your life at this point, but he will be doing a virtual signing with our old friend, Nick Massey, the captain. It'll be the Captain's Corner Happy Hour with Downtown Bruno coming up Saturday, July 23rd. Starts at 7 o'clock. If you've ever seen any of these happy hours earlier, they are a blast. You will learn about professional wrestling. At the same time, you'll have the opportunity to actually interact with Downtown Bruno. And you can pick up some pretty cool merch as well. Signed photos. Uh, Bruno, are you going to have any like gear or anything? Because have you ever seen what Nick does? It's pretty incredible what he's got going on. Oh, yeah. I did it. I've worked with Nick before. He's a great guy. I'm looking forward to yeah. that. I, know I, don't, I don't have any gear. Whatever gear that I used to have, uh, I don't have anymore because I'm not, I'm not a big collector of stuff. You know, it's just me. It's just part of my job. Um, a lot of the things I had, uh, I, I, uh, I don't have anymore. And back in the day, now, if I, you know, back in the day, if I had any idea that the internet was going to come along and these signings and these wrestling collectors were going to come along, whatever, I've got so much stuff that I just got rid of, gave away, threw away, don't even know what happened to it, that I could have probably sold for a large amount of money now. But, you know, and back in my day, you know, who would, if you'd have told me on one day there was going to be these, uh, basically, computer in your hand that you take with you everywhere you go. And, if you, you don't need a road map, you just need to say the name of your destination. It'll get you out of it. Are you on the heroin? What's wrong with right? you? <laughs> so, you know. That's a so, very uh, common yeah. thing. And, and Bruno, we actually where Jeff and I are part of FanFest, Wrestling FanFest that are we operate down in, in Florida. And we bring there's a lot of retired guys there, guys that were stars sometimes 30 years ago, sometimes even 50 years ago. And a bunch of the guys will say if you ever would have told me that I would make more money sitting in a chair, signing autographs and taking photos than I was busting my ass in a wrestling ring for 25 years, I would have told you you were on drugs. So, right, yes, right. I get it. <laughs> so, well, yeah, Bruno, let me ask you so much, you know, uh, so yeah. much of uh, the early part of your career was uh, in Memphis that a lot of the fans know about. So, uh, of course, 
you mentioned three names, uh, or, or maybe you mentioned two, but I, there are three people I want to specifically ask about, uh, you know, on a personal level and professionally, how they helped your career. So let's start with uh, a guy that is always in the conversation, uh, maybe one, two, or three of all time as one of the greatest television commentators of all time, and that's Lance Russell. Could you tell us about your relationship with Lance? Oh, yeah. Lance and I got along very well. Lance was a really good guy, tremendous announcer, commentator. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, we didn't, you know, hang out, uh, away from the business or anything like that. Um, it really wasn't Kate Fade for a commentator to be with a, with a heel. I mean, it wasn't, you know, against the rules or whatever, but, you know, they tried, even though he was, you know, basically neutral, the Walter Cronkite or whatever of, of the territory, still wouldn't have looked good for him or Dave Brown to be hanging out with the guy that they just thought do some evil, you know, mean thing on TV. You know what I mean? I guess one of the, one of the things I'm asking about is uh, a lot of, a lot of people have said, uh, and I please don't think I'm talking about you necessarily, but when you have a right. guy who's newer to the business and they're coming out and they're doing the promos and stuff like that, that Lance would have a way of kind of leading them through the interview uh, and basically helping them get over. Now, you know, you might've come in and, and, you know, because of your other experience uh, right off the get go, you, uh, you know, did great promos, but was there any of that was Lance helpful to you in any way, or did you kind of pretty much know how to know what you were doing right when you got there? Yeah. Uh, to answer the first part of your statement. Yes. Lance was good at that with guys that were, whether it was a manager or, or a, uh, uh, talent. Uh, Lance was very good about helping a guy through promo when he could tell the guy was lost or whatever. And and I'll say this, um, and I'm certainly not trying to brag like I'm this great, unbelievable person or nothing like that. But I have to be honest too. I never needed help with the promo ever. Now, I mean, that was hell. A little bitty guy like me. Uh, well, if I couldn't talk, what the hell else would I buy for the business? You ain't know. So that that. I, that's one thing he never had to help me. He really, all he had to do was stand there and hold his stick. Because one thing about me, I can always talk. And as you can tell now, <laughs> my voice ain't <laughs> as clear as it was at one point. And I'm not as young as I was, but that's one thing I ain't lost. And I ain't lost that. And I, and I never, I never lost. I was always downtown Bruno and I was always good at, at the stick. Now I was different. I wasn't like clever with, like Cornette, who to me is one of the best, if not the best, boxers there ever was as far as a manager. And I wasn't uh, cerebral, let's say, like Paul Heyman, who's also tremendous. I was like the, uh, you know, the, kind of the funny mean guy. I could make you laugh, but I could also piss you off and be really mean, you know, at the same time. Um, so, yeah, I wasn't in their league, and I didn't claim to be in their league, but I was good at what I did. Well, you you were good at what you did. Uh, again, I, I as I told you early on, I it, the '80s were the '80s was such a transitional period for professional wrestling, obviously. But you were one of those bright spots, and even as Memphis was at times struggling, it was like, wait, who is this guy, and where did he come from? And he's a good talker. But there was, you know. To me, again, you mentioned guys like Heyman and Cornette, really two of the best professional wrestling managers in the history of the business. But at the same time, it's like you understood the psychology of what was going to get you heat 
and and it, it connected. It worked with the audience. But you just said something that I found interesting. You said, I've always been downtown Bruno. And in my head, I'm going, wait, wasn't this Dr. Leonard Spazinski at one point? Yeah, but I was always downtown Bruno. <laughs> right. <laughs> there you go. When I, when I say that, I don't mean I was that was always a name I went by. Right. I'm saying that. But no matter who I was, I was downtown Bruno. You know what I mean? That's just they could change my name, but they ain't gonna change downtown Bruno. Because it's like Mama said, it be that way sometimes. And I oh. made a living for that. <laughs> There it is. Beautiful. Was that was that Guido Tatry Newton that gave you the name, Dr. Leonard Spazinski? Yes. And I'll tell you who gave me the name downtown Bruno. Bruno Lauer. There you me. go. <laughs> uh, but I tell you what, where I got it for real though, I mean, yeah, I did give it to myself. I was watching a TV show called Simon and Simon. And that was a a, a detective show. There, there was like a streetwise like hustler uh guy on there named downtown brown who was played by tim reed who's the guy that plays or plays Venus Venus Flytrap. Flytrap. yeah yeah so and i thought what a cool name i'm gonna be downtown bruno from here on out so if, if i ever meet tim reed or if y'all ever meet him or run across him let him know that yeah I, I owe him my career <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> so the next guy that i wanted to speak uh, to you about that uh, i know had such a great influence on, on your career is sid uh yes. So tell me, how is it that Sid, uh, you know, not just helped you out, but was a, a major part of your career and your in influence on your career? Well, let me tell you what happened. In 19, uh, I'm the world's worst in 19. I think it was 86. So one of these people that's on the internet all the time, you don't have to write it. It wasn't 86, it was 85 or whatever. Somewhere in the mid-80s. How about that? You know, some people think <laughs> Okay, internet community, God bless you. I'm not perfect on date. We'll just establish that now. Save your, save your typing. <laughs> but anyway, sometime in the 80s, Robert Fuller wanted me to come to Continental, which is the Alabama territory. And he, he says he had an idea. There used to be a guy doing the Lord Your Mother's gimmick there, and Jeff Van Camp. He wasn't doing it anymore. He got out of the business or something. I don't know. I never met him. But anyway, he asked me if I knew somebody of that size and stature that would be a good Lord Humongous. And I and I thought of Sid. I, I knew Sid. He had worked in Memphis some, not that much. He was brand new to the business at that point. But uh, uh, I said, Robert, yeah, let me try to get a hold of this guy named Sid that I know. And, of course, back then there was no email or, you know, texting or whatnot. Robert says, okay, get some pictures of him and send it to me. So I got pictures and sent it to him. And uh, he said, oh, my God, yeah, that'd be perfect. I want you to come in and manage him. And I said, that'd be great. So I gave my notice uh, in Kansas City. And I went to Alabama with it and helped him get his first full-time job in the business. And then years later, WWE was looking for a you know, they're expanding and getting more and more talent. They wanted an, another heel manager uh, up there. And did uh, recommend me. Got me a tryout. And I got the tryout, and I've been working for WWE ever since. 30, 33 years, I think it is now. So Sid was a huge help to me. And, and he opened a door for me that may or may not have been open 
otherwise. There's no way to know, of course, but uh, I don't have to know. This did, he, he did me a solid. I, I'll never forget him for it. Well, let me let me ask you before we go to Barry for his question uh, regarding Sid. Tell me whether or not you think this is a fair thing that that some have said about Sid. Sid, I mean, there's no question about it. it he looks like a million bucks. You know, uh, every every promoter would dream of having a guy that looked like Sid. Sid, no, whether right. he was Sid Vicious, Sid Justice, or Sid Udy. But one of the one of the things that people said is Sid may have been one of those guys who never really had his heart all the way in the business. Hey, the famous stories about Sid wanting to go and play softball and, and all that kind of stuff. So do you think that's fair that Sid maybe never had his heart 100% in the business? Now, you know what? I honestly don't think that's fair. Um, as, many, as much as, yes, Sid did like to play softball, no doubt. And that's fine. But as, as much as I was around it in Memphis, in Continental, and in WWE, never one time, did he leave because he wanted to play softball? No. And I've always heard that rumor. Now, if it happened somewhere else that I wasn't there, I can't comment on that. I don't know. But I can only comment on what I know personally is with God as my witness. He never left any place when I was around to play softball. He always thought about the business 24-7. He worked out religiously um, and always was trying to come up with new ideas and things and, and we traveled together extensively and he talked about the business a lot uh was he temperamental occasionally yes um but i, I really believe that that's an unfair assessment and i guess some of the people who are saying it might not know him as well as i've known him for oh no no and that's absolutely fair so yeah, that's that's my two cents on that Gotcha. And again, uh, we are extremely pleased to be joined by downtown Bruno Lauer today, coming to us courtesy of the captain, Nick Massey. You can actually interact with downtown Bruno on one of the Captain Corner's happy hours coming up. Uh, it's a Saturday, July 23rd, starts at seven o'clock. Some of these happy hours, Jeff, too. I don't know how many you sat in on, but I try to if I'm home on a Saturday night, which, you know, at this stage of my life, I usually am. I uh, I try to to join up and maybe spend an hour, but some of these will go for three and four hours, uh, and he's really done some great stuff. But uh, you'll be able to get autographed photos. I know that there is mail-in merchandise, so if you have something that you want uh, Bruno to sign, you can mail it into Nick. Uh, Bruno, and this this one's for you. Will you have copies of Wrestling with the Truth? I, on this happy hour, will will fans be able to get autographed copies of your autobiography? Actually, unfortunately, no. I don't even have a copy of it, to be honest with you. I had one copy. I ended up giving it to a, a fellow that I knew from here at home because he really wanted it. Um, so, unfortunately, no. Unless, However, like you said, though, if one of the fans has a copy of it, we must have sent it to Nick, which I'm sure there's a website or a Facebook or something, you can get the address. Um, I'll be more than happy to sign that and uh, anything else. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, we should say, too, this is for the listeners currently. Go to eBay immediately and get a copy of this book so you can <laughs> mail it to Nick and then get it autographed. It is a great book, by the way. I actually have a copy of it, uh, and I may even send my copy to Nick so I can get you to autograph a great book. Uh, you tell you tell Thank some you. stories in there. 
Uh, and what I found fascinating, obviously, is the Rocky Johnson connection, too, was your time in Hawaii and uh, you were babysitting her, Carrie, for, for Leah Maivia's cancer-stricken dog uh, yeah, while you were there. Yeah, and what Young Rock has featured on the show. The oh, I didn't Rock even know which, that. Uh, Young Rock, which, let me, let me put a feather in my hat. Young Rock, which is going into season three, which I'm very excited about. And once again, I am a official consultant for the, the program, which I was the official consultant uh, for the season two, and I'm once again uh, for season three. So I'm very proud and excited about that. That's fantastic, too. So what was it like, young kid, born in Mississippi, raised in West Virginia, living back in Mississippi, gets, gets to go to Hawaii? gets to go to arguably one of the most beautiful places on the face of the earth, has a job in Hawaii, even better. What was it like for you being in Hawaii? It was different, that's for sure. Liam Ivea was definitely not an easy person to work for. Yeah. Um, but I got a lot of experience over there, met a lot of lifelong friends, which actually I just seen some of them uh, three weeks ago because we did a, a uh, uh, roundtable about the Polynesian Pacific uh, championship wrestling territory. I actually went to Los Angeles. I don't want to do a spoiler, and I'm, I don't know how much of this I'm allowed to discuss. But we, we just we had me, Lars Anderson, Kevin Sullivan, uh, Rocky Ayakea at a roundtable about the Hawaii territory. I met, like I said, lifelong friends uh, there: Rocky Johnson and, and myself, Lars Anderson and myself, Jimmy Snuka. He was no longer with us. Uh, it was different. It was different, but. How about this? This is a major, at the time, a major wrestling office, a major territory. And I wasn't even there for two weeks when they said, okay, we're doing a tour of Southern California. We're off flying to Los Angeles and going to San Luis Obispo and someplace else. Uh, I think the Olympic Auditorium in L.A., whatever. I said, oh, really? We're, we are? They said, no, you're not. You're staying here and, and uh, take care of the office. I'm not even two weeks in Hawaii and I'm in charge of a major wrestling federation. <laughs> so it was <laughs> definitely well, different. What, what was it still called 50th state wrestling then? No, it was Polynesian Pacific. Okay. No, no. I, I know. I know that it eventually became Polynesian Pacific, but at some point I think the uh, promotion was called 50th state wrestling or, or something like oh, that. It was at one point. Yes. The last uh, person that I wanted to ask you about, uh, and you did reference him earlier was, uh, was Jerry Lawler. Uh, if you could just please discuss Jerry Lawler, the impact he had on you personally and your career, uh, and what it was like being able to watch Jerry. Yeah. Because one of the things, you know, Barry, quite frankly, and I have discussed before, when you talk about guys who are great promo men, uh, and you know, I think it was our friend Pete Letterberg, uh, Barry, that first said this, Jerry Lawler for like 20 plus years had to go out in front of the same audience every single week and get a match over. Uh, he did it as a babyface, did it as a heel to the same people. And I think that was part of what made him such a masterful promo. Uh, if you could please just discuss uh, your thoughts on Jerry Lawler and the impact he had on you in your career. Oh, yeah. I mean, I wanted to be in Memphis so bad. I mean, Hawaii was fine. It was great. Kansas City, everywhere else I was at, you know, as long as I was in the business making a living. Um, but to me, like guys that grew up in, Philadelphia or, or Baltimore or whatever. Well, their goal is always, w, at the time, WWF, you know. Um, 
that was because it was, if you remember, at that point before you know it expanded like it is, it was basically the northeastern territory, you know, and every part of the country just had their own territory, and that was the that was wrestling to that to that uh, you know part of that zone, whatever you want to call it. That sure. Well, my zone was Memphis, and that was where I always wanted to be. I wanted to be on Channel 30 or Channel 5, which ended up being. Um, I always wanted to be in Memphis. And Lawler, you know, I, first of all, Jimmy Hart was in Memphis, and he was, you know, the main state, so he left to go to, to New York. Um, there was always another manager, whether it was Tojo or, <laughs> excuse me, uh, whoever. Well, finally, when Lawler came to Hawaii, he had me manage him against a guy, his match one night, and he loved my work. He goes, and he said, well, unfortunately, we don't have a spot in Memphis right now because Jimmy Hart uh, is still there, and, you know, he's getting the big push. Well, the minute I seen Jimmy Hart go to work for Vince, man, I get on the horn. Lauro will tell you if you ever talked to him. I called him freaking 10 times a day. So I finally reached him, and he gave me a starting date, and he gave me that break of a lifetime. And for I don't know how many years, I was the main villain manager in Memphis. And that's what set my career off. So what Lawler did for me was was um, really gave me my life. Him, at that point, I had, had did do what he did for me yet. So at that point, it was basically uh, Rocky Johnson and Lawler really put me in a position to where I'm at today. That's why to this day, I'm a multi-thousandaire. so you mentioned a name and you're you were shooting the uh i guess it's this is probably with vice tv uh dark side of the ring i know that they did one on the state of florida uh the old cwf territory that kevin sullivan was also a part of that one recently but you mentioned the name lars anderson and lars anderson to me is was always kind of an enigma in that I, I thought he was a tremendous, from again, a fan's perspective, I should say, right. I thought he was a tremendous professional wrestler, but it was a guy that, you know, he, uh, I guess he had some issues with the office, uh, certainly right. did when he was working in Georgia and, and never really had this big career in the States. But I know that Obviously, he was over in Hawaii. He was working with Liam Avia at one point and was her booker. Were you working with Lars as well over there? Yeah, he was the booker that uh, Rocky had him hire me. I actually lived with Lars when I was in Hawaii in his condo. He had a spare bedroom, and it was my room. And uh, when I seen Lars, and I never did know Dark Side of the Ring, I never because I don't like negativity. But so I just want to clarify that from the list. But, um, it was a bright side of the ring, whatever you want to call it. The thing we did, we just talked about the territory itself. And uh, I don't know where where or when it's going to air or if it's going to air. But if it does, Lars tells a lot of stories about the, the uh, issues he had over there, which I wasn't there anymore when that happened. So I wouldn't be able to even give you any kind of insight on that. Gotcha. And without going in too much, because we don't want to give away too much, was this the issues that Lars had with maybe organized crime in Hawaii? Yeah, I think okay. it has something to do with it, yeah. Yeah. Got it. Jeff? 
Okay, no. Uh, one of the things that uh, we always ask when we have a uh, someone in the wrestling business on with us, uh, I always like that. Barry takes it to a, a food direction, but I, I take it in this direction. So, Bruno Lauer, over the course of your careers, you, you, you've had a chance to work with a lot of different guys. You've been out, uh, dare I say, in an uh, establishment or two where they serve food and an adult beverage. So you're out at a restaurant having a uh, bite to eat. Now, there's some adult beverages uh, uh, being passed around. And all of a sudden, you see about 10 guys coming towards you. And by God, they've got a negative attitude towards you. And they're going to take it out on you. Who's that one guy that you've had uh, in your wrestling career that you want standing right next to you to help you out in this situation? Oh, uh, bless his soul. God rest his soul. And I'll tell you a story about him that, that relates to what you're just saying, uh, in a way. Bam Bam Bigelow. Okay. What's the story? Now there's a lot of there's a lot of tough guys. I'm not saying he's the only one, believe No, no, I get it. A lot of and we all know the Haku stories. We can tell them till, you know, tomorrow morning. And there's a bunch of some guys are tough some guns and you wouldn't even realize it. You know what I mean? But but uh, I'm gonna tell you a story about Bam Bam. My uncle Larry. God rest his soul. He he left us a few years ago. He died at uh, 87 years old. Well, when Larry was about 75 or whatever, I came home from out of town one day and and uh, went to you know I sort of first thing I always do go check on my uncle. And he come to the door. He had a black eye. And he had, uh, uh, you know, gauze on his face where he got had to get stitches and all that. I thought, what in the world happened? He said a guy named Bill Lee at a beer joint here where we live. Uh, him got into it because Bill Lee owed my uncle $5. And my uncle he said, well, look, let me get that $5, yo. And this Bill Lee was a big, mean guy. I don't know, you know, $5, I paid you back. My uncle wasn't no liar. If he made a mistake, maybe, I don't know. I wasn't there when the big $5 loan was, uh, you know, drafted. <laughs> but anyway. Long story short, this guy, Bill Lee, was like 36 years old, a big old raw bone guy, just beat the hell out of my uncle. I mean, to put him in a hospital, which was just, I mean, uncalled for, ridiculous. Um, anyway, long story short, that week, Bam Bam was coming in to work with Lawler in the Memphis Territory. So that night, we were going to be in Jonesboro, Arkansas, which is not even an hour from Memphis. So after we did the Memphis TV, Saturday morning, we had all day to kill before we had to leave for uh, Jonesboro. And Bam Bam was going to ride with us. So he says, what can we do, man? What am I going to do all day? I said, well, it's a place called Splash Casino about an hour south of here. I says, me and my uncle always go there and eat uh, every Saturday. You know, it's, it's, I don't have to go straight to Nashville. And uh, we're going to go down and eat. Why don't you come with us? Oh, man, I'd love to. Now, at the time, I just had a two-seat uh, Toyota pickup truck, and there was not, and it was bucket seats too. There was no room for a big, huge guy like Bam Bam, and me, and my uncle in the truck. Well, I said, Scotty, I'll just ride in the back if you'll drive. No, get out of here. I said, Okay, I'll have my uncle ride in the back. No, you won't either. I'll ride in the back. So here we are, just come off Memphis TV, whatever he did, probably left Lawler laying or something. We're driving down Highway 61 towards the casino. People are almost wrecking their cars. There's Bam Bam Bigelow sitting in the back of a pickup truck. <laughs> just like, you know, like a farmhand. So he didn't really get a good look at my uncle. 
when we picked up my uncle. So we got down to the casino. We walk in and sit down to eat. And Bam Bam says, oh, my God. You know, he had that northern accent. Oh, my God. What happened to you? Why'd that happen? So we told him the story about Bill Lee. And Bam Bam said, oh, where, where does this Bill Lee guy, where does he live? We don't know where he lives. Where does he hang out? Where's that beer joint? We told him, it's not even there no more, so I can say it. It's called Jimmy and KK's Last Chance on Third Street up in Memphis. Let's go up there right now after we leave here. So we went up there. Bam Bam walked in with me and my uncle. Everybody knew who I was because I'm from the area anyway, but plus being on TV for years. And of course, everybody knew who Bam Bam was. <clears throat> and he said, where's Bill Lee? Well, he's not here. Well, get him here. We don't know how to get him. We don't know we hadn't seen him. Oh, can we have your autograph, Mr. Bigelow? Can we? No, you can't have my autograph. He flipped the table over. And he said, you tell Bill Lee, this is my uncle. He pointed at Larry. He goes, you tell Bill Lee, I'll be back looking for him. And I'll tell you right now, if he ever even comes near my uncle again, he's not going to like what happened to him. You think what I did to Jerry Lawler or something? You see what I do to Bill Lee. Long story <laughs> short, nobody's ever seen Bill Lee again. <laughs> He just—he uh, I mean, decided, in the words of Gordon Sully, uh, that discretion was the better part of valor. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Oh, no, he great. never came back to that beer joint. Of course, the beer joint's been gone now. But I'm just saying, he, he Van Bam put the fear of God in him, you know. So that's, you know, that shows me what kind of guy he was. He didn't even know my uncle from the, the man in the moon. He, for him to take a stand like that, I, I, I never forgot it. Gotcha. Well, as we start to wrap up, we want to again remind you that you can actually interact, get some signed merchandise, sign 8x10s. And Nick always has some great stuff. Nick always finds vintage programs and posters, uh, and he really puts on just a – this is a great – great uh event it'll be the captain's corner happy hour with downtown bruno lauer occurring saturday july 23rd starting at seven o'clock who knows what time it'll end bruno we are thrilled that you were able to join us today hey i'm thrilled too i'm gonna tell everybody let's have a let's have a challenge anybody that uh tunes into the captain's corner that day with uh me on there if you can keep up with downtown Bruno, beer for beer. I bet you. Oh, <laughs> oh wait, wait, wait. I, I, I smell Flaherty right now. I was going to say, challenge. let's get Flaherty on the phone. All right. I love it. Yeah. That's one thing I, I can't do a hell of a lot real good, but I, I'm like uh, Billy Currington says in a, in a country music song, I'm pretty good at drinking beer. Uh. Barry, let's talk about last night at the time we're recording this AEW blood and guts opinions as uh, somebody who might be the uh, executive producer of this fine podcast likes to say opinions. We have them. So Barry, what is your opinion on blood and guts last night on AEW? I, I got to say, first off, I was, uh, I didn't know what to expect going into it. I, I didn't know what they were going to do. I didn't really understand the rules of the match. Uh, well, let's I, be honest. It was essentially war games with one extra guy. That's what, I, and that's what it winds up being. It's that it's right. It's war games with one extra guy on each team. Uh, but I didn't know ahead of time what it was going to be. I I didn't realize it would be two rings, which I also thought was a great idea. Uh, and I got to say, AEW started off hot too. You had the Orange Cassidy versus Ethan Page matchup. Ethan Page is a guy. He appears to have 
everything possible going for him. Looks good, can work in the ring, good promo, but he seems to be doing job after job. Intel I've got, Jeff, this day's between us. Yep, well, he you may can be whisper. A, okay, he may be a pain in the ass in the back. Wow. And, and I don't know if that, I know that there was some issue at Impact when he was leaving Impact, coming to AEW, and maybe this is part of it, but the guy does appear to have the talent. Orange Cassidy's interesting as well, because Orange Cassidy, if you go by the gimmick, neither of us were really fans of that gimmick at all. I, I'm, not, I'm still not a fan of the light kicks and all that stuff, but when he wants to go, Orange Cassidy's pretty good. Yeah, um, no, and that's what I said last week when we yeah, were talking about right. the pay-per-view. Yeah. Jeff, you were 100% correct. Check. When he wants to go, he's actually really, really good. So I thought that was a good match. The Jade Cargill. Well, uh, before we get to the next sure. match, let me ask you a question <laughs> oh, that man. someone brought up to me today that I was speaking to. No names. Okay. Has the uh, Dan Lambert bit lost its steam? Yes, it's over. It's uh, Or it needs a break at this point because last night. And is it, a, is it a Dan Lambert problem? Or is it the way that he and his men are being booked? It's a booking problem currently. And I, I would I, I think I actually think and look, let's be honest, Jeff, you've you've met Dan Lambert dozens of times. Uh, you know, Dan, I think Dan is a real talent when it comes to cutting a promo. But the problem right now is it, it's, you know, look, you're in the first match of the show. Your guy's done the job again. You're off to the back. Uh, and it's a very small group he's got. He's got essentially Scorpio Sky and Ethan Page. I know he's got Page Van Zandt, who they're using uh, extremely minimally currently. But I, I think it's more of a booking issue. I would try to figure out what I could do with Dan Lambert because I do think he's a talent, uh, much like I think Ethan Page is a talent. With that, uh, good match, Jade Cargill and Layla Gray, who I had no idea who she was, made no sense to me. They show her AEW record at zero and four. So why don't we give her a title shot? Uh, she's never Well, and here match. again, uh, I don't mean to interrupt. Please. Let us point out something that you and I have mentioned on more than one occasion. So by God, uh, Tony Khan needs to listen to us. As opposed to maybe other people. Why don't you put Jade Cargill in a match with someone who's had, dare I say, a slight bit of experience, you know, uh, put her in with someone that can carry her through a match that will showcase and enhance the talents that she does have, as opposed to putting her in a match with, you know, this woman who I'd never heard of either. I don't know. Zero and four is a reflection of strictly what's been done with her in AEW or her limited experience in the ring altogether. but. What are they doing? I don't understand this. You know, put her in with, I, I'm just going to throw a name out there. Put her in with someone like Serena Deeb, you know, give her a program with someone who knows what the they're doing in the ring so that she can be led through a match. You know, it's the old uh, uh, Bill Watts, JYD story. I, I don't mean to associate it with someone, uh, you know, an African-American, but what Bill Watts told, uh, you know, uh, Lynn Denton famously about JYD is don't show me what he can't do. Show me what he can do. So sure. that he gets over. And that's exactly what Lynn Denton did. Jade Cargill needs to find her Lynn Denton. But again, this is uh, this is this all goes back to booking. Look, Jade Cargill is going to show up and do whatever she's told. So this all goes back to booking. And you'd be absolutely correct. If you want to get better, look at a guy like Wheeler Yuta. 
And we we sang the praises of Wheeler Yuta last week, and rightly so. Wheeler Yuta apparently is spending his time working with guys like like uh, William Regal, Steve Regal, Brian Daniels, and I don't know if he's working out with Moxley, but he's really honing his craft to get better, and you can see it every single week. And you and I both said in a couple of years, this guy is going to be a bigger deal. And look, the match last night. He was really good in that match. Like he he didn't he wasn't in that ring as the rookie, in my opinion, or the green guy. He held his own. And, you know, you could see guys like uh, Claudio Castagnoli and, and Moxley giving him high fives and giving him praise and all that. So I am a big fan. But what they're doing with Jade Cargill is a mistake. I will say it does look like based off of last night, it's going to be Jade Cargill and Kira Hogan versus Statlander, and I believe it was Ruby Soho. Was it Ruby Soho? No, it wasn't. It was uh, Athena. So it, it looks like they're going to be going the route of tag matches. Working with Athena and Statlander should make her better as well, especially in a tag match. She's really, whatever faults she has, probably are going to be hidden. But, uh, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, and let me give you another example. And, sure. and this is a more extreme example. You know, the best matches, in my opinion, of the Ultimate Warrior's career, who was a guy standing there, looked great, okay, uh, had a series of, was, you know, they called him uh, the, the Ultimate Reuter back in the day. I, I remember uh, someone had a, a T-shirt like that. But uh, he, he was a guy known for having really bad matches. Now, whether it was because he was not, he was limited uh, talent wise, or that's the way they booked him, whatever. But when he had the program with Rick rude, all of a sudden everyone was like, well, fuck man, this is a pretty damn good match. I remember I've said it before a match that, uh, before the night of uh, steamboat and flair in Nashville, we went to a card at the same building and the main event was warrior versus Rick rude. And we were all like, wow, where did this come from? And it's because they put him in with somebody that was fucking good. It's not that fucking hard. So, if Jade Cargill at this point, comparing her, you know, to JYD and the Ultimate Warrior, is somebody that looks good standing there. She has that presence. Why wouldn't you want to put her at the ladies that you mentioned? Maybe that's what will happen. Like all of a sudden, the light will go on, and these women will suddenly make her, you know, look like a fucking star that we potentially believe she could be. Let's hope that happens because certainly when he was working with Rude, all of a sudden the Ultimate Warrior looked like, hey, maybe this guy's rounding into shape and he's going to become the fucking you know star. And, and really, with the push he was getting, if he was just an average worker, he would have been much better received. Okay, and the other example I used JYD. All of a sudden he gets put in with you know like Lynn Denton as the grappler. He gets put in the ring with Ted DiBiase. But it's not a really uh, hard math problem to figure out. All of a sudden, you know, JYD is a fucking national star, shows up because he's getting over so well, shows up on TBS, and he's working on TBS with DiBiase against the Freebirds, and the guy suddenly is a national star. And it's because someone took what was a really strong gimmick, a really strong presence, they put him in with somebody that knew what the hell they were doing, and all of a sudden magic happens. And let's hope that happens to Jade Cargill. And it will. I, I, Jay, I mean, she does have star written all over her. Uh, I'm assuming Red Velvet is probably gone for a while, which was kind of what the little angle that they did with this Layla Gray last night, where uh, she shook or is going to shake hands with Stokely Hathaway. So I get the feeling that we're going to see her become a baddie. Uh, 
but that Jade Cargill and Kira, and that you know, I, I have a one. First off, I wonder if anybody listening gives a shit. <laughs> As I sit here and I there say that, I, I was saying I'm, I'm listening to myself talk, and I'm thinking, you know, there, there's got to be a guy like in Nigeria listening to us that cares about this. But uh, I shout know, out I to all our uh, our listeners. <laughs> yeah. And I and I'm a 58 year old man discussing how Jade Cargill is going to get over with Kira Hogan. I hang my head in shame at the moment. But um, we were I, talking about uh, blood and guts. <laughs> I know we, we quickly got to move on. You know what? Fuck it. Let's just move right on for that into, uh, <laughs> into blood and guts. We, we amuse ourselves. Folks. We really do. This is uh, we often talk about it. This show is for us, ladies and gentlemen. So Jeff and I can bullshit, catch up and make each because other. The show was originally based on conversations that Barry and I had. And I have to tell you at this point, uh, if it was a conversation, I'd probably be going, Barry, shut the fuck up. What, what do I got? <laughs> I care about the, you know, uh, exactly. the Jade tag match. But anyway. No one does. What the, what the fuck am I going on about since nobody gives a shit? Uh, let's talk about Blood and Guts, which really you and I are kind of passionate about. So, again, I didn't know what to expect. I'm going to tell you what I liked about the show, uh, what I liked about the match, and then I'll tell you what I didn't like about the match. But what I liked about it, first off, they gave this thing a full hour. I like the fact that it's 9 o'clock at night. And they're starting this match, meaning you're going to get this match for a full hour. I think that is spectacular. Uh, I think if the match was not exciting, that it, it certainly would have brought it down. But you know what? This was a crazy, wild, fun match. The guys were having a lot of fun. This was well booked. I thought the ending was spectacular. My favorite spot of this entire match, this Angelo Parker. I forget what his real name was. He's outside the cage. He's hanging by his legs. Upside down. Upside down, yeah. covered in blood. I'm like, oh, this is incredible. Matt Menard, and I forget what his real name is also, had so many thumbtacks on his back that at the end of the match, they were pushed so deep, the blood is just streaming out of his mat, out of his back. Now, I like blood in matches. I'm not one of these people that's going to tell you uh, that I don't because there are a lot of these people that are out there. I don't like uh, the the basically what we call garbage wrestling and whether that, you know, whether you agree or disagree with that. I don't like a match that's just based for blood. Let me see how much I can inflict on you and all that shit. But this was different. What I really liked about this match more than anything else, it told a story. This match told a story from beginning to end. This was one of my favorite matches I think I've seen in quite a while. Is it the best match? No, absolutely not. There are better matches out there. Telling the story and the way the match ended and the ending of the way that you know the, 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 the TV program went off air, I just thought was this is exactly what you want. Everyone looked like a star. Eddie Kingston, I think there was a redemption. He's done a lot of jobs. He looked great. Apparently, Santana got injured. That's why you didn't see him on top of the cage. I think Santana came in and uh, was injured within the first minute. I don't know how serious that is, but having the five baby faces standing up on top of the cage victorious was absolutely huge. I did get the vibe. That uh, and again, Santana may be the key with this, that you were going to see the Blackpool Combat Club in some sort of fight with Eddie Kingston, Santana and Ortiz at some point as well. So 
let's uh, let me bring up a, a few points that I read online and other people have mentioned to me. Uh, let me start off with the announcing. First of all, and we'll keep this short and sweet so this doesn't turn into a uh, uh, a uh, review that's longer than the match itself. Jim Ross, is it over? It's uh, yeah, I think it is, and w- and I think they're they're aware of that as well. Okay, I think so. No, no, what do you think uh, if it is over as they begin to slowly sort of wind down the Jim Ross uh, experience, if you will? Uh, do you like bringing him out like for the main event as the main event broadcaster? I think, and I think last night it actually worked. I didn't, okay. he, I didn't pay attention to Jim Ross because I was so focused on this match. But I think that's what you would do. Yeah, it's over. Okay. So uh, someone else pointed out that there seems to be a particularly a long match, like last night that went an hour. Uh, do you notice Jim Ross at times in matches, not just last night, but matches like that that go on a little bit longer? Uh, Jim kind of checking out. Have you, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know if it's necessarily him checking out as much as it might be Jim Ross, I guess, 70 years old or certainly sure, approaching yeah, yeah. or close. I just think he's just an old. I don't think he's checking out because he's checking out. I think he's checking out because it's an advanced age, health issues, loss of his wife, Bell's palsy, all the issues he's had. I think that's why he's checking. Uh, out. I mean, and, and let's be honest, just to use it as a comparison, you know, Gordon Soley in the 70s was as great an announcer as anyone had ever seen. Gordon Soley in the early 90s in WCW was not the Gordon Soley of our youth. Not even he, close. You know, yes. he, he got a lot older, uh, and you started seeing uh, Gordon uh, you know, put in the worst commentator uh, category uh, you know, at the end of the year Observer Awards. And so, you know, it's as Barry correctly pointed out, uh, you know, Jim has got he's in his 70s, so I think that the idea, if you're slowly beginning to wind down the Jim Ross career, putting him in one match, the big match per show, is is an idea that I don't hate. It's a lot better than all of a sudden Jim Ross isn't there. Yes. So I was uh, had someone mention to me that on the pay-per-view, which I'm guessing you haven't watched yet. I have not, correct. Okay. One of the things that was pointed out was how much better the broadcasting was with our friend Kevin Kelly there, okay? So, uh, and, and I agree that Kevin Kelly was very strong. I, I think right now, I, I've seen him on New Japan. He's really excellent. He's very detailed. Uh, and, uh, do you enjoy Excalibur as a play-by-play guy if they're winding down the Jim Ross thing? I'll receive a lot of hate for this. I think Excalibur is fantastic. I like Excalibur. I like the fact that he's a guy that knows literally every fucking move yep. uh he knows all the guys he knows where you know what like uh different promotions they've worked but he wears for. a mask jeff he wears I know, a that's mask. the that's the part that really irritates me like at some point i get it you were a wrestler your career was ended uh you're extremely knowledgeable you know what the fuck you're talking about you do a good job at some point, they need to fucking take the mask off the guy and just have him be Excalibur, you know, without the mask. You know, uh, Tim Woods was Mr. Fucking Wrestling after he took the hood off, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, wow, that's a really dated reference, by the way. Um, here's something else I read. So, Claudio Cast- Castanoli, is that how you pronounce it? Castanoli, yeah, I guess okay. the G is silent, yeah. So, I read online, someone made the comment Great. They've put over, they, they put over Claudio over Zack Sabre Jr. 
they might have well have, have put like Barry Horowitz over. No offense to Barry Horowitz, who's been a guest on this show before. That was someone else's comment, not mine. So because I was not a WWE fan when he was there as, is it Cesaro? Was that who he was? Cesaro. Cesaro. Okay. Uh, is that, first of all, is that a fair comparison? Was he essentially yeah. a job guy? Who? Cesaro? Yeah. No, it, he was he, actually, this is a great point I want to bring up if you remind me, but he was not a job guy. He was a guy. He was middle of the road. He was middle mid card would occasionally get a push, but the fans were always solidly behind him. I did see and I want to say it was our old friend Jeff Winger that said uh, he uh, wasn't Zinger. a fan of. Zing, what I Jeff Winger? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Winger was a great hair band in the mid eighties. <laughs> no, he was my cab driver, John Winger. He was <laughs> is my cab driver today until oh, he I'm stopped sorry, the it's car. Sorry, the Nyquil I took, ma'am. <laughs> he know. threw my luggage in the fucking river. Uh, he uh, Zinger was complaining that uh, he didn't feel and that's, that. That's whose tweet I was talking about. Was okay. He doesn't yeah. like him for some reason. He's no, no, not, and that's he made it very yeah. clear. So the fact it makes that makes no sense uh, to me, though. Yeah. Well, uh, okay, so. Here's the problem, uh, looking at things from a Tony Khan point of view. So you have this guy that you're bringing in, okay? You, in the first match, he's facing Zack Sabre Jr. Now, let's be honest. Uh, one of the things I was say, I, I said to somebody this morning was, you have that New Japan AEW thing where, okay, uh, AEW guy got to win. Now the New Japan guy needs to get the win. You got to have that balance, okay? Uh, it's not, uh, here's a shocker, folks. Not every AEW guy was going to be booked to win. Because that's a quick way uh, to get New Japan to never fucking work with you again. You have to let their guys get some rub. But you have Zack Sabre Jr., who you bring in and you're like, oh, here he is, the greatest technical wrestler in the world. And then you have him lose to a guy that in some people's minds, and just to use the words that Barry said, was a mid-card WWE guy. Okay, so now potentially you've kind of destroyed Zack Sabre Jr. Uh, to in the mind of the fans. But... I also understand from the AW point of view, you want to get this guy Claudio over. So now he beats the New Japan guy. Then he comes in in the main event, uh, Blood and Guts, and he's the guy that gets the uh, the submission hold that results in the win for his team. So now Claudio has been uh, elevated. You know, Claudio is like, wow, yeah, this guy's doing great. He's got his first two matches. He's getting put over huge. Does Claudio, here's a, here's a term that uh, uh, football analysts like to use when they're talking about people, uh, whether it's uh, high schools, kids coming into college or college kids going into the pros, uh, floor versus ceiling. Okay, do you understand that term, Barry? I do, I do. Okay, so what is, uh, if we know what the floor is for Claudio, like mid-card guy that you said he was in the WWE, what is his ceiling? Is he... Do you think he's good enough to, if booked properly, to become a, a guy that is like seen as a main event guy by AEW fans? Hundred percent. I okay. I and I, I think there was, and I don't know. A, that's why I'm asking you. There was such a massive group of people. He had his own section. He had the Cesaro section in WWE. There were calls for years for him to get a main event push. They would give it to him, then they would stop it. He's not great on the mic. I mean, this is, you know, but he's over with the crowd. He's easily one of the best wrestlers in the ring in this country. I, again, I, I would have, I would push him to the moon and I would do it quickly as well. Okay. And now the comparison, uh, uh, facially, uh, body, uh, you know, style, body, uh, physique, and stuff like that. The guy, tell me if this is fair that I told somebody kind of reminds me of Jason Statham. What do you think? Yeah, I see that. Okay. So uh, now the other question is 
uh, if he's joined the Blackpool uh, uh, club or whatever. So you got Moxley, you got uh, Brian Danielson, you got uh, uh, Wheeler Udo, uh, Claudio, uh, who am I leaving out here? Besides Stephen oh. Regal or William Regal. No, that's it. Okay. So yeah. has the fact that Claudio in his first two matches that he's been pushed over and pushed so hard, has this now relegated Wheeler Yuta, who we just spoke about, to being the, the, the sort of the last place guy in the Blackpool club? Well, but he is he is by default. I don't think it's I, I don't think it's a talent issue, though it may be a talent no, no, issue. No, no, but, well, but but do you do you see that as having uh, uh, having hurt him? I don't think so. I think he is. I think again, you're looking at a guy that you know two years ago, a year ago, he was doing jobs on a weekly basis. He was sure. the guy they would bring in, and he's he's having great matches or very good matches at this stage. I don't think so. I think he's still a developing character, and I think that big push is clearly going. It's already happening, but you're going to see it uh, in AEW over the next couple of years as well. Okay, so um, let me see what was the other. Uh, so Blackpool, uh, we see going against uh, eventually Eddie Kingston uh, and uh, Santana and Ortiz. Is that pretty much the way we see it going? That's how I see it because if you the dissension between Eddie Kingston, oh yeah, yeah, Brian obviously Danielson. they mentioned they mentioned Claudio and Eddie having had issues exactly. in the past. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> uh, let me and, and I'll just leave our <clears throat> blood and guts uh, section here. Uh, and by the way, of course, obviously I really like the match. Although, eh, who's the one guy that just bled uh, from Jericho's group? I mean, he just bled like where you were kind of uncomfortable. They both did. It was Matt Medard and or whatever his name is and uh, yeah. Angelo Parker. I think they it was I think were. it was Matt that that was the one that he was the one that bled first and it skewers like, in the head. Oh yeah, and, and that was just like uh, that was you know there's thing. a certain point where you know I like I, I like uh, when you have a, a a match like this where yeah there has to be some component of blood. I'm sorry, a cage match that has no blood is is stupid. Okay, and you know no wrestling fans. Match, yeah. Yeah, is like yeah, what that what the hell? So uh, that made me a little uncomfortable. But let me just say this, okay? Eddie Kingston, right now, a, as much as I love his promos, his work is fine. The one thing that I think Eddie Kingston may do better than anyone in the wrestling business right now is his facial expressions, because when he was waiting to get in the ring, and he's like, they do the close up on him, and his eyes are just kind of bugging out, and he's kind of biting his lip. You know, and, you know, like he's just kind of chomping at the bit to get in there. And I'm going, this guy is so fucking good. Uh, you know, he, he gets it. He gets how to get himself over. He gets how to provoke a reaction from the crowd, which, I mean, let's be honest, Barry, that's like uh, it, that's one of the number one things that a lot of kids coming out of wrestling school that can work their ass off in the ring. They don't get the whole connecting with the crowd and, and facial expressions and stuff like that. And Eddie Kingston absolutely gets that bear. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he does. He's uh, the only thing with Eddie that I would say is his interviews are are very similar every time where, you know, I don't give a crap. I'll, you know, I'll, it, it's and I get that's also part of his character, but I think he does have to show another side. But look, Eddie Kingston is a guy that's been around for what, almost 20 years. He's worked NWA. He's worked. I saw him work small promotions in Philly doing jobs. This guy's been around. Now he's in the main event on AEW and winning and over with the crowd. He finally achieved, I guess, what he got into professional wrestling for. So I'm happy. It's kind of like the American dream in a lot of ways for the guy. And, you know, yeah, kudos to him. He's a guy that uh, and I this is going to come off sounding slightly disrespectful. I completely don't mean that when I say he has a he's a guy that's gotten more with perhaps less. 
You know, he doesn't have that uh, typical quote unquote wrestlers build and physique. He's gotten over through hard work. Uh, he's, he was willing to go in there and give his opponents their, uh, their spots and their just due. He takes punishment. Uh, those facials and the interviews have resulted in him connecting with the crowd and getting yep. over with the crowd. Uh, and he's just doing a tremendous job at it. Speaking of tremendous smooth segue there, Barry, Ooh. we mentioned it last week, Barry Rose. I can now safely say I have completed the three season run of Barry. What? So, Yes, let's talk about it. We'll try not to give any spoilers here for those of you that haven't watched it. Uh, spoke to uh, TGBL this morning who told me he's only watched one season but has to get back to the last two. So, Barry Rose, tell me, did you like the ending? Of this year? Uh, the, of the of the show. Because there was a very definite finality to what happened at the end but of the show. So, with that, I... After watching the last episode, I immediately Googled it to say, wait, this is the series finale. And as it turns out, it's not. They're coming back next year. I don't know how they're going to write around what occurred this year and how they're going to make that work. Did I like it? I didn't. Did I like this year? Not really. I didn't love this year. The first two seasons I liked a lot. This year was very dark. It was brutal in a lot of ways. And it, the show just kind of went in a different direction. I didn't love it as much as I had the first two seasons. I, without spo- I don't know how I do this without spoiling. That the, the pivotal scene where no words are spoken and two of the characters just look at each other. Yes. Was re- what you get was really impactful. And- well, okay. So, so let, me, let me bring up something that, that <laughs> happens. And again, I'm going to try to do this best without spoiling it for those that are either still watching or haven't watched it yet, which I, I have to say, Barry, and I, I, I think I – could speak for you. This is a show really that is worth going out of your way to watch. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There, are, there are parts that are incredibly funny. Uh, there are parts that are very serious and very dramatic and stuff like that. Uh, some tr- just tremendous acting. We talked about, you know, characters like Mr. Cousineau, Noho Hank, uh, Monroe Fuchs. And, you know, it's great because Bill Hader, as the guy who basically created this show, along with, I think, somebody else, but uh, and is the star – one of the things it reminds me of, and, and I'm not saying it's the same show, but in the same capacity, Jerry Seinfeld was the, the star of Seinfeld, but so much of the show was about the supporting characters. And Barry uh, is, that's Bill Hader's character is Barry, but so much of the show and what makes the show great is not him. It's the supporting characters that make the show fantastic. So, and here, here's another thing that I like about the show. Uh, you'll be sitting there and all of a sudden you'll see uh, a new character come on and you'll go, wow, where do I know that person from? I, you know, I, you know, I've seen them somewhere and you kind of do a Google search and you're like, holy shit, that's Annabeth Gish or holy shit. That's Laura San Giacomo. Uh, or in the last one, the guy, and I don't know the actor's name. It was the guy that played bunny Colvin on the wire. And, you know, uh, I was talking to Brian about the show today and he said, one of the things that he loves and I love it. Uh, about HBO shows is they tend to recycle people that have been part of the cast of other great HBO shows. We mentioned, you know, on the wire and then on um, the uh, shit. uh, uh, We own this town where you see uh, actors that were in the wire or on this show, uh, guys that were on the deuce that were on the wire. They bring in uh, guys from other shows onto new HBO shows. And I really like that. And there are so many great character actors that kind of run through three seasons of Barry. Now, 
let me say this. The uh, couple scenes that I really liked, uh, the scene that you were referring to, I believe, and I hope this doesn't spoil it, that is someone showing someone else they really can act. Yeah, well, I think that was absolutely part of it, yes. Yes, yes. And that was the look that was given was, you didn't think I was a good actor, but I can act, okay? Then the other thing was um, the scene at the beach, okay? Which was essentially like a dream sequence. But uh, speaking uh, to someone who I know is is Mr. Fucking Beach. <laughs> so when you're checking out, yes. when the time comes for Barry Rose to check out of this mortal coil, uh, would that be a okay way for you to know? Okay, I'm I'm fixing to leave. You're at the beach. The waves are crashing, and you look around. And you see all these people that have been part of your life. Uh, that uh, you've impacted their life uh, is a nice way of putting it, and you know it's time to go. Would you have a problem with that? No, I'd be fine with that. Yeah, and I, I was watching that, kind of thinking, I know friggin' Barry would be like, oh, okay, I can I can live with this. So, I can do that. Well, I've already I have requested that both kids and the lovely Linda both know that if I am to pass away, I do want to be cremated and I want my ashes to be spread at my favorite beach in the world. So yes. Okay. Well, I know, huh? Let's, let's hope it's not in the next couple of months. Cause we haven't built up that much bank stuff yet. Barry. So no, no, exactly. Once we get we, enough we, of the bank, we, we, yes. we got to think of the show. Very time once again for, uh, not just America, but the world's favorite breaking cave paper powder and berry segment. It's Florida man or not. Are you prepared and ready? This is a shortened version instead of four stories, only three, because quite frankly, the listenership has let me down and I've only gotten three stories from listeners. Well, Jeff, I got one uh, the other day. Maybe I can. Uh, Son of a bitch. Yeah. Now what's going to happen <laughs> is I'm going to, I'm going to say that you're, I'm going to have to disqualify myself. I got to recuse myself. First story, Barry, woman yeah. high on crack arrested for beating her boyfriend for refusing to go down on her. Ugh. Are you ready? No. <laughs> First of all, that's a, that's a tremendous headline. Ugh. All right, go ahead. Woman was arrested for allegedly attacking her boyfriend while high on crack because he refused <laughs> to perform oral sex on her. I hate when that happens, Barry. Catania Jordan is said to have hit and scratched her longtime partner at their home. According to police, uh, the police responded uh, to the scene at 3 a.m. You know what they say, Barry? Nothing good happens after 2 a.m. Here it is, 3 a.m., and uh, Miss Jordan is having problems. Her boyfriend, uh, I like the fact that they categorize each issue. Number one, they'd been fighting about Jordan's drug abuse. According to police report, the couple had been arguing about Jordan's crack smoking at the time of the incident, at which point she started to hit him and demand he go down on her. Mm. Uh, Barry, have you ever had a woman demand that you go down on her? Jeff, I was going to ask you, have you ever gone down on a crackhead? <laughs> That's what I was well, going to uh, say. Let me think. I'm thinking. I have had a woman demand that I go down. I don't know if demand is the correct word. Maybe request. Uh, gently or not even gently nudge the head in that direction. Exactly. You know. But a crackhead? I don't know. Yeah, well, okay. well as the uh, article continues, when he refused, things took a violent turn. Number two, Jordan would not take no for an answer. When her boyfriend refused to perform oral sex on her, she began, quote, hitting and scratching him, unquote, which resulted in, quote, several small lacerations. Oh, wow. They got color, Barry. Uh, they got which, color. <laughs> which police believed were caused by her fingernails. There was even a witness at the scene who confirmed this version of events to the, you know, so well, let me just stop there. All right. 
So you got somebody else apparently at the scene of the incident, okay? Yep, yep. And she's wanting the boyfriend to go down on her. Uh, just forget about the other person that's there. Uh, perform your uh, your due diligence on my uh, VJJ. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, number three, she tried to make a quick getaway. Jordan had already run away from the property by the time authorities arrived. But with the help of police dogs, yes, the dogs yes. were called in. They were the dogs could to- sniff it, Jeff. <laughs> well, oh, I'm not going they were able to locate. That was extremely poor taste, by the way. Oh. They, were, they were able to locate her not long after. Perhaps you're right, Barry. <laughs> she know. fully admitted to her actions, but claimed that her boyfriend had tried to choke her and insisted that her actions were in self-defense. Barry Rose, Ugh. Florida woman or not? No, this is a this is a Michigan story. Largo, Florida. No, damn it, Pinellas County, Barry. Oh. Are you thinking about buying a home in Pinellas County, by the way? Yes. As a matter of fact, I absolutely am. Pinellas would be the county I'd be living in. Largo, and as my real estate agent, the great Frankie Seacrest. I thought it was the great Janice Seacrest. Uh, well, it's a combination of the two. Ja- Janice, hey, no offense, but if you're going with the real estate agent, go with Janice. She seems like she's got her stuff together. A little I was going to say. I, I didn't say that out loud, though. Janice would. Jen is the one. Yeah. Frankie would admit that too, right? Like Jen is, uh, yeah, we, we all, we all defer to Janet, but, uh, but they have both told me that Largo is, and there's a name for Largo, which I won't share currently because it's what? probably not appropriate, but oh, please, please, it, please. All right. Larghetto. Uh, oh, just sounds, wow. yeah, exactly. But, uh, there are parts of Largo that are okay. There's a lot of parts of Largo that are not uh, obviously where these people are, where the crackheads and the guy wouldn't go down. That's probably not the best neighborhood in Largo. Maybe I'm wrong, but, uh, but I am familiar. So from Frankie, Largo is probably only 15 or 20 minutes away. Okay. So next story coming to us from our friends at the Associated Pressbury. High quality journalism. Good friends too. Yeah. Yes. The story headline is woman brought baby, comma, stash of drugs to prison visit. Wow. 44-year-old woman brought her infant grandchild along with a stash of cocaine and heroin to a recent prison visit. Guards searching for the visitors uh, as they entered found nearly 3.5 ounces of drugs during the jail check-in process. Always good when you're visiting someone in the joint to bring the drugs with you. Oh, yeah. Barry. Smart. Uh, Smart. Uh, so police arrested the woman. Then, uh, here we go, Barry, another canine-involved story. Canine named Liberty conducted a, I love this term, quote, free <laughs> air sniff, unquote, of her car. <laughs> These stories seem like they're related in some way. Yes, they um, <laughs> Where addition, an additional 24 ounces of cocaine and heroin were located alongside a baby's car seat and other sure. essentials. The baby was turned over to uh, the facilities uh, and, uh, you know, the, your various and sundry governmental agencies the woman was charged with trafficking in heroin and cocaine, introduction of contraband into a correctional facility, child abuse slash neglect, and of course, possession of drug paraphernalia. Barry Rose, Florida woman or not? Oh, man. Uh, first story was Florida. This one, not. This is Texas, Jeff. This, this Arcadia, Florida. Florida. Oh, you're killing me on this one. Arcadia. DeSoto County, Barry. Are you familiar with DeSoto County? I'm not, I think, I, I don't think this is too far from Mark Russ. I, 
I want to say, I Arcadia, say Arcadia, but I don't, I don't know. know if you remember Barry was a uh, a pretty decent pop band uh, in the mid '80s uh, with one of the guys from Duran Duran. That's that's right, Arcadia. That's, yeah, right. that's right. And it might be where the name for the Arcadian Vanguard Network came from. Not going to uh, say anything more about that. Say that perhaps that story was told to me. <clears throat> Next story, Barry. The headline: Man fate. Well, wait a minute. It uh, kind of okay. I thought you, facing, name, I thought you were going to name drop Brian Last again for the forty-fifth time this I, episode. I, I, I did. I say that it was Brian Last. No, no, you I did it. Thank God. Yeah, right. yeah. A man facing drug charges arrested with seventy pounds of marijuana while leaving the courthouse. Oh, a man was appearing on drug charges and was arrested while leaving the court and found with more than get the load of this seventy pounds. This guy was planning a party, Barry. Wow. Uh, Eves Dubak was in court on charges of driving without a license and possession of more than one. He's charged with possession of more than one pound of marijuana. So let me show up to court with 70 pounds in my car. Obviously, Barry, this guy is a Mensa uh, student or, or a Mensa person. Is he uh, French? Uh, He's French? I, I don't know. Oh. Are you saying his name? Yeah. Eve? No, no. His name might be. I have no idea. Okay. I don't didn't do a, any sort of uh, Google didn't research. do a background check. Yes, All no, right. I have not had the ability. Uh, police uh, that were working as a, uh, a court officer that day, at the end of the proceedings, they saw him leaving the parking lot, driving in a Toyota SUV. And I always, I always love when you go to court because this has happened before. You go to court, and you're you're there for like driving on a suspended license, okay? And then you go out to your car and drive away from the courthouse facility. I, I've actually seen that happen, and cops immediately pull you over, stupid. Anyway, they pulled the man over, arrested him on the charge of operating without a license. While searching his car, the trooper found a total of 70 pounds of marijuana, 20 pounds of marijuana extract. Uh, you like the extract, you bear? I don't know. I guess I do, yeah. Okay. Along with other drug paraphernalia, that led to a new charge of trafficking in the marijuana. He was one short, a one court appearance short of a hat trick, but two in the same court uh, on the same day is pretty unique, police said. Barry Rose, Florida man or not? All right. So the first two stories were Florida. Is Jeff going for the sweep here? Making the trifecta, all Florida. if you will. Hold on. So it's the triple two, crown. Two plus three. Baseball terms that Lou Minus four. I carry the carry six. The, carry the two. Past that. Carry the two. And then it looks at this is Florida. You're doing an all Florida, Florida men or not. Yep. Florida. Newburyport, Maine. I don't, know, I don't know if we've done any, any Maine stories, Barry, have we? I don't if think we have. Work. It's been a while. Hot yeah. tick, if you will. Yeah. All right, Barry. We rounded the turn. We're heading for home on another episode of the old Breaking Cafe with Bowdrin and Barry. Uh, a little bit of everything in this show, Barry. Another fun episode, too. I got to say, I uh, I had no idea that downtown Bruno would be as friendly and as uh, as affable as he was. And what a great guest. This has been another fun episode. And, uh, yeah, just coming off the holiday. Still trying to recover off the holiday yesterday. Did you eat too much? I did. I ate. Uh, I ate too much, and uh, I drank a little bit too much, and uh, sunburned. Just another day, Jeff. Absolutely. So, on behalf of my co-host Barry Rose, our producer Sweet Lou Kippelman, out in the city by the bay, I will remind you that I am Jeff Bowdrin. Some people call me the Booker. We are a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Take it home.